Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Delphine Morales, Chief Executive Officer of Philea, the Philanthropy Europe Association. We're going to be looking at recent trends in philanthropy, exploring the European Philanthropy Manifesto, which has just been published, and looking at how to create a better international market for philanthropy or a single market, reducing friction in funding, operating, giving, and much more. So stay tuned for an insightful conversation on philanthropy. And on that note, Delphine, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much, Alberto. Happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to see you again. You're out in Brussels. I'm here in the UK, so not much of a time difference. You're the Chief Executive Officer of Philea, which is the Philanthropy Europe Association. And you bring together really interesting stakeholders across Europe and actually further afield who care about philanthropy and try to drive this forward. What I think would be great to do to start with is finding out what Philea is all about. Absolutely. No, thank you so much, Alberto. So Philea uh, is basically a community of foundations. We bring together 216 foundations from across Europe and beyond, um, as well as 27 national associations who in themselves represent about 7,500 foundations. And then on top of that, we have a group of 55 other stakeholders from the broader philanthropy ecosystem. And together, we really strive to contribute to co-shaping and supporting pluralistic, just and resilient societies that center people and planets. So that's a little bit why we exist and what we do. We're a fairly young organization. We were created formerly one year and eight months ago, but we are the result of a merger between two older organizations, the European Foundation Center on the one hand and Daphne on the other. And against the backdrop of crisis, of multiple crises, including the pandemic, there was a real understanding that we needed to come together to do better. And that is how Philia came into being. Tell me a little bit about those trends that you see in philanthropy. You're in an enviable position to have insight into what people are thinking and doing and embracing. Absolutely. So it's been really fascinating to see how the sector has changed over the past couple of years with the pandemic, the cost of living crisis, with climate becoming a very present concern in everybody's day-to-day life. And what we've seen is that foundations have embraced uh, trust-making approaches much more that they have gone for approaches whereby unrestricted funding, flexible funding, core funding becomes a bit more of the norm. Um, We've been really excited to see how foundations also embrace organizational development support as one of the ways in which they can support their grantees So beyond the funding, also looking at how they can strengthen organizations from within with their own capabilities. Um, Connected to that, also an increase in kind of participatory grant-making approaches, Um, bringing people in that have lived experiences, bringing those that we're serving in the forefront so that they can decide on where the support goes. And then also connected to that, a desire to have more localized approaches to what foundations uh, do so that eventually you can lead uh, you can allow those who, 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 who you're actually supporting to decide again on, on how uh, to best uh, go forward. Fascinating stuff. How do you gain insight into the mindset of these organizations, these philanthropic leaders? 
different foundations, different folks, different appetites, different thematic areas, geographic areas, and so forth. Um, how do you interact with those who are your constituents and how do you gain insight into their thinking and their uh, evolving approach to philanthropy? Well, I think first, I mean, you made a point about how they're different. And one of the things that we see is that if you know one foundation, basically, you know one foundation. Mm. Um, of the kind of 216 foundations in our membership, um, we have uh, foundations that are operating foundations, foundations that are not operating foundations. Some of them are endowed, some of them are not endowed. We have community foundations, banking foundations, corporate foundations, family foundations, and then they all have their own specific areas of interest. So we're constantly kind of looking at that diverse um, landscape of organizations that has different approaches in different contexts. And we do that by talking to them a lot or listening to them, first and foremost, and uh, listening uh, both in terms of bringing them together in communities, bringing them together in networks, um, uh, taking some of the understandings through service that we host. So there is a lot of kind of really deep listening that we do with our members to, to see where the sector is going. Yeah. How do they interact with each other? You mentioned a little bit about your convening of bringing these members together. Give us a little bit of insight into what that looks like. When do folks come together? Where do they come together? How do they interact? Do they do it in person? Do they do it virtually? Are they different um, subject groups? I, I think the way in which they come together is probably much, probably just as different as the sector in itself. Okay. Um, so that means that we have, within Philia, we have thematic networks that um, bring foundations together around key themes of interest. So we have thematic groups that look at uh, philanthropy and gender, philanthropy and, um, and democracy, um, the work of research foundations, so kind of thematically coming together around areas of interest. But we also have communities of practice that bring together foundations and philanthropic leaders that want to learn about the how and the practice of philanthropy. Um, so it really depends on what the you know, what the sector is looking for and how we kind of as a, as a platform and as, a, as a, a community can help them have mutually reinforcing benefits from being together and have access to spaces that allow them to, to learn, yeah. to have more impact yeah. together and to grow. Yeah, because some folks I imagine are absolute experts in philanthropy, others are complete novices, mm -hmm. uh, yet everybody can learn, right? Everybody can cross-pollinate ideas and learn from each other and... Yeah, completely. And I think the sector is, is changing so rapidly and there are so many reasons why we need to do better um, that you can be in the sector for as long as you want. There will still be an opportunity for you to understand, to, you know, to kind of think through what the new approaches could be that help us um, achieve our, our, our collective vision. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a minute ago how the field is evolving and in part... Uh, the pandemic and various other dynamics that you've flagged up. What about the context in which the foundations, your members actually operate? Uh, you have a shifting political landscape, you have uncertainties, you have conflict. Shed some light on the context in which the foundations are operating and then we can segue into the, um, the European Philanthropy Manifesto, which I know has uh, I don't know if you could say at its core, but a key driver is that sort of aspiration for a single market, uh, more uh, less friction in the philanthropic market across borders. Yeah, absolutely. So I, again, I think um, the situation is different from one country to the next. 
Um, and philanthropy is different from one country to the next. What we do see is that the operating environment within which philanthropy operates is not optimal, right, for it to really achieve what it aims to achieve. So just to give you some examples, we see that there are kind of obstacles in terms of legal recognition from uh, acting in one country towards acting in the other country. Um, merging from one country to the next is really complicated. Um, having cross-border giving remains a really complicated thing. And all of these aspects really make it difficult for foundations to do their job in a way that, that would allow them to unleash their full potential. Um, on top of that, we're seeing that shrinking, you know, shrinking civic space is becoming more and more of a concern for foundations and for their grantees. Um, and that in some countries, there is an increase in foreign funding restrictions, which again is something that we're worried about. Um, so, so it's not necessarily a, a very easy operating environment, or at least one that we need to not take for granted and be very mindful of. And that's why um, we feel that as Filia, we can also be a voice of philanthropy and help protect that environment so that philanthropy can, can actually live up to its expectations. Who said we need a manifesto, a European philanthropy manifesto? <laughs> Where did that idea come from? So, so it's not a new thing. So we had a manifesto back in um, 2019 um, because we saw that there were barriers to philanthropy back then. And we've worked quite a bit with the European institutions and also at national level um, to address some of those barriers. And I guess the good news is that there has been a recognition of the value of philanthropy. There's been a bit of a momentum at European level. Uh, some of the things that we've seen is that the European Commission came out with a social economy action plan that recognizes the value of philanthropy, also because philanthropy was quite present in the pandemic and responding to some of the challenges then. Um, there's also been a proposal last year by the European Parliament and then by the European Commission uh, for a cross-border uh, association statute, which again is really exciting. Um, so we wanted ahead of the elections to kind of continue that conversation. And we didn't come up with that on our own, but we really worked with our constituency to, to come up with a, uh, a plan, uh, to come up with a proposal for a continued conversation with the European institutions after the elections. And that's what the manifesto is about. Got it. Got it. It's a good looking document. It reads well. And... Uh... And it's also not a massive document. It's not like you have 100 pages. I think you have, what, uh, half a dozen pages, uh, perhaps a bit more, but around there. So it's quite bite-sized, mm. quite digestible, quite something that most of us can just get our heads around and be able to get the salient points right away. Exactly. No, and, it, and it's supposed to be an invitation for continued conversation. So essentially what it does is that it has four recommendations. Um, those recommendations are around empowering philanthropy, facilitating cross-border philanthropy, engaging with philanthropy, and partnering with philanthropy for public good. And that is a, a beginning of a structured dialogue that we want to continue with the European institutions also after the elections this year. Yeah. Love to um, drill into the cross-border side of things a little bit. I've lived in various countries. I remember when I was chief executive of a foundation, It was actually four separate foundations. So it was a 501c3 in the US. It was a charity here in the UK and registered in a couple of other European countries as well. And, um, you know, different governance, lawyers, you name it, right? And, and indeed, those who were supportive of the foundation, again, they could reside in all over the, the mm -hmm. globe. 
And so, so many different things to contend. There are frictions. I mean, you, that created a, a, a few uh, challenges that, that needed to be addressed. Tell us a little bit about the cross-border side. What are some of those bottlenecks? What are perhaps some of those um, low-hanging fruits that we could you know, grab onto and succeed with a fair degree of uh, ease? What's the dynamic? Yeah, no, so I think in terms of cross-border work, it really comes down to fiscal and legal contexts that are different and that make it really complicated for organizations to work cross-border. Um, with, just to give you an example, we were uh, looking at some of the case studies that we've collected, um, the story of a foundation which was established in Sweden, then wanted to work in Belgium, but then they had issues because they weren't able to pay the pension scheme of their employees in Belgium. So they tried first um, to merge, um, then to move, but it became so incredibly expensive and so incredibly complicated that they kind of had to close down one of the entities to establish a new entity in the other country. And this is the reality for so many organizations, whether it's nonprofits or whether it's foundations, and it's a waste. It's a waste of energy, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. So that's, that, that's kind of the situation that we're facing. The good news is that there are a couple of proposals on the table that potentially could help. Um, so um, there is a the proposal from the European Commission um, to establish a cross-border association statute. And according to the Commission, that would save up 770 million euro a year on basically administrative costs. That's huge. You know, that's money that can be invested differently. Um, there is a possibility also to uh, stimulate the mutual recognition for nonprofit uh, organizations for member states. Um, and there we'd like to see a directive come out and that would really allow that to happen. Um, you know, there is also uh, non-discrimination uh, law that needs to be implemented more thoroughly across European member states. And that again would allow for foundations and nonprofits to work more and better across borders. Um, you know, and all of these things are relatively doable if there is political will, and we see that currently there is a bit of a momentum. So we're very much hoping that that will continue in the next uh, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I know you're not a lawyer, um, so we're not going to get necessarily into each jurisdiction. But I imagine some some countries are a little bit more, I wouldn't say welcoming, but uh, perhaps have a fa more favorable context in which to operate than others? And if so, do you find your members sort of gravitate to those to incorporate or to have their base, even though they may be, I don't know, they may be Swedish, but they like to operate in a different country? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think a lot of organizations know where circumstances are better to operate. But still within those countries, if you look, for instance, um, because it's not only the legal context, it's also the cultural context, the socio-political context, the economic context that has an impact on how philanthropy is striving. To give you an example, Germany is a country where you actually have very favorable conditions for philanthropy. Um, the legal uh, context is, is looking good. Uh, the, the fiscal context is looking quite good for foundations, but still you would have a lot of disparity between the West and the East, um, where, you know, according to recent reports, only 7% of the vast amount of foundations that operate in Germany, over 25,000, are based in the East. So it's not only kind of the legal and, and fiscal context, it's a broader set of elements that come into play and that all require a bit of attention and understanding for philanthropy to really be able to to invest in uh, creating a more just society. Hmm. Fascinating. 
The manifesto itself and what we've been talking about so far, generally we've been talking about some of those policies that could be enacted, explored, embraced, and so forth. Um, but let's let's touch a little bit on that cultural side of it, that that appetite for philanthropy, that awareness for philanthropy, and uh, and even within the East and the West, within a single country, you're highlighting those differences. What are you hearing from your members, and what are your um, what's your thought on the sort of things that can be done that perhaps aren't policy related, but that could help increase that appetite for philanthropy? Good question. I think I think first probably a, a thing to acknowledge is just that philanthropy is changing. Um, I think there are non-traditional forms of philanthropy that are on the rise um, that we need to embrace and give space to. Um, I think that's one thing that we see that really does matter. I think another thing um, would be probably to continue also supporting and investing in infrastructure for philanthropy and infrastructure for giving um, so that we open up more avenues for people who actually want to do good to be supported, to learn from each other, to see how this can work. I think that's another thing that really helps uh, the philanthropic sector in all its diversity to evolve. And then you'd see that in some countries you have real solidarity also between certain regions. Like just to give an example, in Italy, uh, the vast majority of foundations and especially the kind of the, the assets that they have access to is situated in the north. Um, you traditionally have less foundation in philanthropy in the south, but some of the um, Italian banking foundations from the north have actually created and given some of their wealth to a new foundation that is run and supports uh, the south. So you have all of these mechanisms that come into play and that have to be a response to the local context. You can't apply one solution to all. You really need to understand what is, you know, where is the community going? What is the need of the community and how can we support um, that in its own flourishing? Fascinating stuff. One of those items you mentioned was about making it easy to give or facilitating that. And um, uh, I remember when I was heading up the fundraising for, for a foundation, that international dynamic also presented a challenge. So it wasn't just about how we operate as a foundation, but it was also about that income generation, the philanthropic income generation. And then if you have a donor in country X, how do they get a tax relief or a tax break? How do you then transfer those funds over to where your bank account would be? Uh, how do you make that as, uh, as cost-effective as possible? What mechanisms do you need? Do you need to grab onto a third-party platform to facilitate it? Could you do it by yourself? Big question, but what's the deal? What's the deal? On that? Absolutely. So I think what we're hoping for is indeed to see that single market of philanthropy emerge so that you can start doing that from one country to the next. And while this is not the reality yet, there are luckily schemes with uh, some foundations who have created a thing which is called the Transnational Giving Europe. Um, and they allow you to then give money from one country to the next. But it is not yet the single market that we're looking for. So I think we need to kind of continue to aim high, um, work with the European institutions and take away the barriers for cross-border giving. How's the appetite across the different countries? Um, do the philanthropic actors in, in all of the countries, uh, well, in the European side of things, are they, uh, does everybody have that appetite for let's go, let's have a single market? Or, or do you sometimes get a little bit of, um, you know, we do things here in one way, you do things your way and... I think there is an increased um, 
appetite to collaborate and learn from each other. Um, but of course, not every foundation is necessarily going to want to operate at global scale or at European scale. And I think that's absolutely okay. You know, we don't need every foundation to start giving money in another country. I think a lot of foundations are doing fantastic work at local level, and that's great. But even in that work that they do at local level, there is a possibility to work with others so that you become better at what you do, to connect with good practices that are being developed in other countries. And, and so that, that kind of element of coming together, learning, exchanging knowledge, um, seeking opportunities to do better is something that is of interest for every foundation, whether they operate at local level or at global level. And increasingly, because obviously the big challenges, the global challenges that are faced today, they're felt the hardest at the local level. So that understanding of how the local and the, the global interact and interplay, I think is going to continue evolving in, in kind of the next years. As you look forward, uh, whether it's 2030, because I always like grabbing onto that date uh, as the SDG target year, but as you look forward, what's success look like? For, for you and Philea? I think what I would hope, and maybe it's almost kind of a personal hope, is that um, we'd continue to um, embrace working with a certain level of humility. And I think that that humility helps us understand what the needs are better. Um, I'm hoping that with that, we continue to really think through what power actually looks like and how we deal with that power. Um, we continue to have approaches whereby we're brave enough to let others be in the front row and lead. Um, and we do that uh, by listening to each other um, and by accepting the vulnerabilities that come with it. I think we're really at a time when whether it's climate, whether it's democracy, whether it's equality, the challenges are so big um, and the responses need to come so fast. We're going to need to change the mindsets within our own organizations to achieve change. We're going to have to invest in building trust. We're going to have to invest in, um, in connecting around kind of a shared humanity. And I think foundations can actually do that. I think foundations, not on their own, but I think they can play a role in that. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping that we can contribute to. The, uh, these challenges, which can, can seem overwhelming and the sense of urgency, did you always know that you were going to be in this space? How did you end up where you are today? And give us a little bit of that journey. Yeah, so I think I am... Um, I, I was probably one of those kids on the playground that always wanted to build something together and have have dreams that somehow we could try to uh, help come true. Um, and then, um, and then, kind of, in, as a student, I studied philosophy, and then I studied European studies, which probably is because I do like complexity, and because I do like to think of governance systems that allow people to create change together. And from there, I was really lucky to work in organizations that always have kind of that really deep social purpose. I set up an organization called Missing Children Europe together with others um, that connects organizations on the ground that deal with missing and exploited children um, across Europe. Uh, and then I was also a secretary general of a, an international federation that deal with children and child rights across uh, the world, mostly in humanitarian and development contexts. 
And I mean, to be honest, I, I did feel in those roles that funding and funding structures were oftentimes limiting us. And that's where I thought there was so much potential in uh, trying to be part of the philanthropic world and think through how foundations and philanthropic support can actually continue increasing its ability to support those who realize the change on the ground. Absolutely. Where should folks go to if they want to find out more about the European Philanthropy Manifesto, if you want to find out about uh, Philea, the Philanthropy Europe Association, where would you point them to? So I'd go to our website, uh, philea.eu. That's the easiest entry point. Um, we also are on all social media and, um, you know, we're available. We're very happy to talk with people. We have quite a few events. We have a conference coming up in uh, end of May in Ghent that is going to talk about trust and philanthropy and that will hopefully bring together about 800 people from the sector to talk about all the things that keep us awake at night. Excellent. Before you run off, I'm going to ask you for a key takeaway. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I guess the fact that we're going to do better if we open up and that we have no time to waste. Wonderful. And on that note, Delphine, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do On Better podcast. An absolute pleasure seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alberto. It was a pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Delphine Morales, Chief Executive Officer of Philea, the Philanthropy Europe Association. For information about this conversation and more than 250 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.